Hello and welcome everyone to this colloquium on gods and robots, myths, machines, and ancient dreams of technology. And apologies for our delay this evening because of a technical hitch with YouTube. My name is John Tesulis and I'm the director of Oxford's new Institute for Ethics in AI. How are the ancient Greeks relevant to our efforts to grapple with the contemporary challenges posed by robots and AI? To discuss this question, I'm delighted to welcome our main speaker this evening, Adrian Mayer, who is a research scholar in the Classics Department and the History and Philosophy of Science program at Stanford University. Adrian is also the author of a marvelous book on this topic entitled Gods, Robots, Gods and Robots, Myths, Machines, and Ancient Dreams of Technology, published by Princeton University Press in 2018. Welcome, Adrian. Thank you. I'm also very pleased to welcome our two distinguished commentators, Shadi Bacht Zimmer, who is Helen A. Regenstein, Distinguished Service Professor of Classics and the Program in Gender Studies at the University of Chicago. Her most recent publication is the, the Aeneid, a new translation published by Random House last year. And Arman Dangor, who is Professor of Classical Languages and Literature at Oxford University and a Fellow of Jesus College, his books include Socrates in Love, The Making of a Philosopher, published by Bloomsbury in 2018. Welcome to you both. Now, at a quite fundamental level, the ancient Greeks are relevant because AI challenges our very self-conception as human beings, a self-conception that has been partly shaped by Greek thought. According to Plato and Aristotle, just to pick out two random ancient Greeks, we humans are essentially rational in nature and our personal flourishing lies in the cultivation and exercise of our rational faculties. This self-conception still resonates today. For example, it's widespread in the notion of human dignity that plays such an important role, for example, in thinking about human rights. Even if, of course, it has taken a buffering over the centuries from various forms of naturalism and skepticism, some scientific, some postmodern. AI, however, confronts us uniquely with the prospect of artificial agents who can do things that normally require the exercise of human powers of reason. Things like making a medical diagnosis or predicting the likelihood that a criminal will reoffend, or deciding whether credit should be extended to someone. But beyond this general point, Adrian's book reveals that the Greeks are like us in addressing the challenge of robots and AI in two ways. First, that there were actual examples of automata to guide their reflections, like the philosopher, engineer, and friend of Plato, Archytas, caused a sensation, apparently, with his mechanical flying dove. But second, and more importantly, because of the presence of automata in many of the ancient myths, from the bronze giant Talos to the ambiguous figure of Pandora. And like us, the Greeks veered between fear and hope in the face of the imagined technological advances that replicated or surpassed human powers of reason. As Adrienne puts it in her book, and I quote, the unsettling oscillation between techno nightmares and grand futuristic dreams is timeless. It is with us now and it is present 
in the ancient Greeks' understanding of humanity's drive to transcend itself. Sometimes this drive to transcendence takes a noble form. All too often, however, it is a source of fear and dread. And it is surely instructive for us today, grappling with the power of big tech and AI-enabled government surveillance to subvert democracy in various ways, to observe that many of the most famous ancient automata, Talos and Pandora included, were created as expressions of absolute arbitrary power, whether of a vengeful god like Zeus or a tyrant like King Minos. So I'm very much looking forward to this discussion. Please remember that there is a Q&A session towards the end. So feel free to put your questions in the chat box on YouTube. But I have now very great pleasure in turning over to Adrienne. Adrienne. Thank you, John. I'm so honored to be invited uh, to this colloquium in AI ethics. I'm really looking forward to talking with you and Shadi and Armand and everyone else about how automatons were first imagined in classical antiquity. And for my book, I started with a, a question. Who first imagined robots, automatons, artificial intelligence, uh, replicants? And historians of technology uh, usually trace the first self-driven, self-driving machines to the Middle Ages using clockwork uh, mechanisms. Um, but we know that, um, as you just mentioned, Archytas uh, was able to make a self-moving a self bird in the fourth century BC. Um, and some uh, philosophers of science, um, uh, to my uh, surprise, have argued that no one in antiquity could even imagine automatons before the technology existed, which is, uh, uh, seems patently uh, counterintuitive because where does innovation come from if not from imagining things that don't already exist? And I do have some images uh, tonight. So uh, if we could have the first uh, slide, Holly, um, that just shows the uh, cover of my book and the two uh, uh, automatons and artificial entities that I'm, uh, that I'm going to be talking about tonight. I wondered, was it possible, um, I think we'll go to the, uh, the first slide. Well, you, you, can, you can do that one, yeah. Um, uh, was it possible that the idea, the concepts of uh, making artificial life, automatons and even AI could have appeared much earlier uh, in history? Could people in antiquity actually imagine such things before technology ever made them possible? And it does turn out that more than two 1,500 years ago, in the time of Homer, some vivid Greek myths did envision how one might fabricate artificial life, robots, and other synthetic beings. And these myths emerged long uh, before the technological innovations of the Hellenistic era, beginning in the fourth century BC that I mentioned earlier. Uh, long before that, um, people were imagining making artificial life. And I know this is a rather strange uh, exercise for a very future-oriented uh, group, but I'm inviting you to consider uh, imaginative ideas about creating artificial life explored in mythic stories from uh, more than two millennia ago. And these, you consider these myths, uh, think of them as thought experiments. Uh, I think it's uh, fun to call them the first uh, 
first ever science fiction tales. And then that now the next slide, please. These artificial forms of life were described as made, not born. So that we know they were imagined as manufactured, not reproduced biologically or naturally. Uh, so we're not talking about just uh, lifeless objects or inert matter that was brought to life by a magical spell or a God's command. I mean, there are stories like that. Every culture has stories like that. I'm uh, talking today about uh, uh, entities that were imagined as products of what we might call biotechne or life through craft. So these were technological products and they were constructed by gods using familiar tools and materials and methods uh, of the day. But because the makers were uh, gods, uh, they achieved awesome results. Um, the next slide, please. And so today we'll start uh, with the very first robot to walk the earth. And I'm talking about mythology, of course. Um, this is Talos, the giant bronze automaton made by the god of invention and uh, technology, Hephaestus, the blacksmith god. Um, this is a very ancient oral tradition, and it was first written down in about 700 BC, around the time of Homer. And this uh, famous ancient vase painting uh, by the Talos painter shows Talos as a man constructed out of bronze. Um, Talos was a killer robot. Uh, he was given by the god Zeus to his son, King Minos, uh, to defend the kingdom of Crete from invaders. Talos was able to march around the island three times a day. His task was to spot invaders and then he could pick up uh, boulders and hurl them at approaching ships to try and sink the ships. But Talos had other capabilities. In close combat, he could uh, heat his metallic body, he's made of bronze, heat his body red hot and then grab up victims and crush them to his chest and roast them alive. Next slide, please. Hmm. Yes, these capabilities are shown uh, on ancient coins from Crete. You see him throwing uh, rocks or boulders and uh, the bronze mirror, he is crushing some victims. Remarkably, we even know something about the automaton's inner workings and I think these details confirm his technological origins. Talos had a single tube or artery running from his head to his foot, but instead of blood, ichor is what pulsed in that conduit or tube, and ichor was the mysterious life force of the gods. That's what made them immortal. This entire viva system uh, was sealed with a bronze bolt on his ankle. So Talos does really fit the basic definition of a robot. He's a self-moving android. He has inner workings, he has a power source, and he interacts with his environment. And Talos was featured in the Greek myth about Jason and the Argonauts. They encountered Talos when they tried to drop anchor uh, in Crete uh, to rest after uh, gaining the, uh, uh, the Golden Fleece. Next slide, please. And this scene is from the vintage cult movie, Jason and the Argonauts from 1963. Maybe some of you are uh, familiar with it. It's uh, uh, highly recommended uh, just for the stop motion uh, animation. Um, 
And I actually, I like to talk about movies when I'm talking about Greek myths, uh, because they're, after all, they're all cultural dreams. In the myth, Jason and the Argonauts were doomed to become the victims of Talos, but luckily for them, the uh, powerful sorceress Medea was able to save them from Talos. She's a resourceful and clever witch. Medea figured out how to destroy, uh, uh, neutralize and kill the bronze robot. And she used, I think it's interesting, a combination of persuasion and technology to do that. Medea was able to convince Talos that someday he would die. And then she promised that she could make him immortal, make him immortal, but only if he would allow uh, them to remove the vital bolt on his, on his ankle. And unaware of his own nature, Talos agreed to that. Next slide, please. Medea and Jason unsealed the bolt so that the automaton's power source, the ichor, would bleed out completely. And that is what killed him. The remarkable idea of using a tool to dismantle Talos. That's another very ancient idea in the myth. And we know it goes back at least to the fifth century BC because we have vase paintings like this one uh, from about 440 uh, BC that showed Jason actually using a tool to remove the bolt, the robot's weak point on his ankle. And the robot's uh, power source, Icor, uh, we hear that it flowed out like molten lead and Talos uh, collapses and topples over. I think all these details from the myth and the artwork emphasize that Talos was not only made with technology, but he was destroyed with technology. With tool. So Talos was imagined as a metallic automaton, uh, but with some human features. So he's kind of uh, envisioned as a kind of uh, cyborg, a machine-human hybrid. The techno-wizard Medea was able to guess that Talos uh, might have developed or had some human-like desires, and she played on that. For example, Talos feared death. He wished to be immortal, and Talos could be persuaded and fooled by Medea, the, the more uh, humanoid features that Medea could exploit. Uh, Talos was a fearsome machine then, but his human aspects also made him a sympathetic figure in antiquity. Now today, psychologists try to figure out why, uh, why do we tend to anthropomorphize robots and feel empathy uh, for them as though they were human. We do seem to be hardwired to uh, bestow emotions on, on things that somehow seem alive to us and uh, of interest to those who work in AI and robotics, uh, studies do show that empathy is especially likely for uh, uh, robots and AI if the entity has a name and a backstory about their creation as Talos did. Next slide, please. And uh, a famous uh, modern uh, um, example of that, some of you might remember the the uh, Stanley Kubrick uh, film, 2001, A Space Odyssey from 1968, another cult uh, movie, the iconic scene when the astronaut Dave is destroying the spaceship's artificial intelligence computer, Hal. And Hal seems most human when he's being deactivated by the astronaut. As Hal is dying, he starts to tell his name and he begins to recite 
uh, memories uh, from his childhood. And this evokes sympathy in the audience. Well, in the 1963 film, Jason and the Argonauts, Talos doesn't really have any facial expressions, uh, the bronze robot in the movie, but the animation sequence manages to suggest a personality and uh, uh, intellect in the bronze giant. Next slide, please. And in that uh, poignant movie scene, as his life force is bleeding out, the great robot struggles to breathe. You can see on the left there, he clutches his throat while his bronze body cracks and crumbles. And the modern audience feels pity for the helpless automaton. And human qualities are what make the robot's destruction feel tragic to us. And just like in antiquity, people felt sympathy for the robot who was tricked and killed uh, while simply doing his job. And so in the ancient vase painting there in the center, made uh, 2,500 years ago, the dying bronze Talos is humanized. His arms are limp. He's falling backwards as, uh, uh, as uh, he's dying and his eyes are rolling back. <coughs> and I think what is even more striking and rare, the ancient artist has painted a teardrop falling from the robot's eye. Well, that ancient idea of an automaton guard cast in human form like Talos, able to defend against invaders, <clears throat> that continued to capture people's imagination in the Middle Ages. Next slide, please. As you may know, uh, Leonardo da Vinci designed a life-size robotic knight in armor in 1495, you see on the left. And a century later, that idea was taken up by the poet uh, Edmund Spencer <coughs> in his epic poem written in 1596, Spencer retooled that bronze robot Talos uh, from Greek myth as the Iron Knight, also named Talos. And this Iron Knight was a grim enforcer companion given to Sir Artigal, who was a uh, virtuous, uh, hero who traveled around the land, uh, trying to bring justice to, to lawbreakers. And the Iron Knight, Talos, was intended to help him bring law and order to the countryside, but it soon became uh, um, a relentless killer robot, totally without mercy. Ultimately, this Iron Knight imposed iron law. The robot had no compassion, no mercy, and no interest in individual uh, circumstances, motives, forgiveness, or remorse. And I think that brings up some interesting questions about AI and the law. <coughs> Next slide, please. And now I'm returning to the ancient myth of Jason and the Argonauts. Uh, Talos was not the only deadly uh, automaton that Medea had to overcome. Jason also had to survive the attacks of a pair of fire-breathing bronze bulls and an unstoppable automaton army. Those uh, techno obstacles belonged to a powerful king who wanted Jason dead. And with Medea's help, uh, Jason uh, was able to subdue the terrifying robo bulls and he yoked them to a plow. And next, Jason and his men had to fight 
and defeat the king's sinister army of invincible atomic, uh, automatic uh, warriors that popped out of the ground fully armed and programmed to attack. Next slide, please. <coughs> And here we see a medieval image of uh, those automaton soldiers emerging from the field, fully uh, armed. These diabolical soldiers, they couldn't be commanded or ordered. They couldn't uh, retreat or halt. They're sort of hardwired to attack and the army of androids advance on the nearest enemy, which is Jason and the Argonauts. And once again, Medea to the rescue. Medea figures out how to take advantage of the encoding that's imprinted in this uh, unnatural army. Just as she exploited the, the bronze robots uh, weak points, she hit on a clever way to trigger them to self-destruct. Well, I just want to point out that if you're facing machines of malice, you want uh, Medea or someone like her on your side. She really is an ancient uh, version of a, a brilliant hacker. And I think these myths show that the Greeks understood that even the most awesome technology uh, has uh, can have weaknesses, uh, vulnerabilities that can be exploited and that automatons do not always perform as expected by the maker or, or those who deploy them. Now, Talos and the bronze bulls were just some of the many uh, marvelous automatons that were made for powerful kings by Hephaestus. Um, and as the god of invention, Hephaestus really had an impressive uh, um, resume of animated androids and self-moving devices that he made for the gods and for himself and the other gods. Now, Hephaestus is interesting because he's the only god with a job. He's the only god who sweats. He, he's always pictured hard at work. He's using familiar tools, materials, and methods that people saw in real uh, uh, workshops and forges on earth. But as I mentioned, because Hephaestus was the god of invention and technology and blacksmithing, uh, and uh, forges. His imaginary creations were marvelous, far beyond the dreams uh, uh, of what any mere mortal craftsperson could achieve. And next slide, please. For example, uh, Homer tells us that he made automated gates uh, for the heavens so the gods could drive their chariots back and forth with ease. Uh, of the first uh, automatic garage doors here. Um, Hephaestus also built a fleet of self-driving vehicles. They were three-wheeled autonomous carts that delivered nectar and ambrosia uh, to the gods' banquets and then returned when they were empty. Hephaestus constructed a uh, set of self-regulating bellows for his forge. Uh, and according to Homer, uh, in the Iliad, these automated bellows could blast more or less air, depending on what was required by Hephaestus as he was working. But uh, I think uh, one of his most amazing inventions, maybe the most amazing invention, uh, was a crew of life-sized, lifelike women made of gold. And these golden maidens served as his personal helpers. Homer describes them bustling around uh, Hephaestus's workshop and they were able to anticipate his every need. And Homer tells us that the golden maidens looked just like real young women and these female androids were intelligent. They were endowed with strength and reason. And I think most astonishing, Homer says, they were equipped with all the knowledge of the gods. Uh, so essentially, uh, these lifelike uh, automatons 
seem to possess what amounts to a mythological version of AI, all the knowledge of the gods, and they, they have strength and able to reason. The capstone, uh, however, of Hephaestus's creations was yet another lifelike replicant. Um, like Talos, this one was designed to interact with humans on Earth. And this marvel was called Pandora. Um, next slide, please. Now, I want to uh, point out that the Pandora in the original myth was not anything like the fairy tale uh, version that most of us have heard of in, in our childhoods. Uh, Pandora was not an innocent, curious young woman who, with a tragic case of curiosity, uh, couldn't resist opening a forbidden box or jar, inadvertently uh, unleashing a swarm of uh, evils on the world. The original story of Pandora is much darker. The myth was first written down by Hesiod about 700 BC, around the same time that, that Homer was describing the golden female servants and some of the wording uh, that the two authors use is very similar. Hesiod's description makes it very clear that Pandora was an artificial young woman made not born. And in the myth, the king of the gods, Zeus, a uh, very vengeful and harsh tyrant, decides to take revenge on human beings for accepting the gift of fire that was stolen by Prometheus. Zeus commands Hephaestus to fabricate an evil disguised as beauty in the form of a lovely and seductive young woman. This is to be a trap for humans. Zeus, uh, we are told, takes malicious glee in this cruel trick. He's laughing out loud as he gives the instructions to Hephaestus, telling him to give this uh, bewitching young uh, artificial woman uh, the power to move on its own. Next, he orders the gods and goddesses to come and bestow gifts, uh, capabilities, and personality traits uh, on Pandora. Uh, Athena dresses her in uh, fabulous garments uh, of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, uh, fills Pandora with irresistible sex appeal, and Hermes, uh, the messenger god, uh, instills Pandora with a deceitful, shameless nature. So this deceptive fembot uh, kind of AI agent in, uh, in the shape of a young woman was to be sent by, uh, sent by Zeus down to earth, carrying a sealed jar filled with evils to plague uh, mortals forever. And her only mission on earth was to open that fateful jar and release uh, eternal misery and suffering on humankind. Next slide, please. And here we have a vase painting of Zeus admiring Pandora uh, made to his specifications before sending her to earth. And you can see she looks like a, uh, a statue or a, a doll. And I think it's interesting uh, to cast this myth in robotic AI terms. Um, and this is thanks to uh, AI uh, philosopher, George uh, Zarkadakis. Um, he, he points out that the word used for, uh, for Zeus coming up with the intellectual concept of Pandora. He uses the word, uh, uh, Hesiod says he crafts that idea. Then Zeus commissions Hephaestus to build the basic hardware. Uh, Hephaestus makes this female uh, replicant lifelike enough to be accepted as a real 
young woman by humans. The other gods then supply the operating system by giving Pandora various humanoid uh, functions and properties. And by Zeus's design specifications, uh, Pandora is programmed uh, to open and then close the jar of evils uh, and there, therefore accomplish her mission on earth. Next slide, please. And this is uh, uh, the magnificent uh, Niobe vase, uh, more than a foot tall, uh, that shows uh, Zeus showing off the completed figure of Pandora to all the gods. And I can um, uh, give you some uh, better details so you can see the figures a little better. And the next slide, please. And in the top row, you see Zeus seated on his throne on the left there. And Pandora is in the top row center, facing out, looking at us. All the gods and goddesses, as you can see, are very active. They're lively. They're filled with awe at this realistic artificial woman. They're gesturing and talking. And uh, in the next slide, a uh, close-up of Pandora. Next slide, please. Uh, in contrast, Pandora is standing there stiffly like a statue. She's gazing out at us with a kind of uncanny smile. And uh, as one art historian uh, says, she looks like a wind-up doll about to be activated. And what's remarkable is that in vase paintings at this time, faces looking straight out at the viewer, that's very rare. A full frontal face indicates a kind of mindlessness. It's appropriate for for dead, uh, dead bodies or inanimate things like masks or statues. And frontal views like this can also suggest a, a mesmerizing gaze. And I think on this vase, both of those effects, a blank mind and a kind of compelling gaze uh, seem to be intended by the artist. And the other remarkable thing is facial expressions are also extremely rare in vase painting. Uh, but this Pandora is smiling at us. That statue-like appearance, that creepy smile, they represent Pandora as a kind of wicked automaton, and that fits Hesiod's depiction of uh, Pandora as evil described as beauty. And here I have another movie reference. Um, next slide, please. Uh, Pandora, I think, is eerily reminiscent of the evil robot Maria in the great silent film Metropolis, which was made in 1927, made just a few years after the invention of the, of the word robot. Next uh, slide, please. Already uh, in Metropolis, uh, that film shows that already by 1927, uh, people were already imagining a future techno dystopia uh, where the rich ruling class uh, oppress miserable workers with automation and robots. And I think the scene of, uh, of those uh, artificial women being prepared is, is quite striking. Well, to return to the Greek myth, um, next slide, please. Zeus orders Hermes to escort Pandora to earth and present her as a bride uh, to a man named Epimetheus. And here we see that. Uh, um, and the guy in the middle there is Hermes uh, finding amusement in the whole, in the whole inter interchange. Prometheus, uh, humanity's protector, tries to warn Epimetheus not to accept 
this nefarious gift from Zeus. But Epimetheus ignores the warning. He's dazzled by Pandora's beauty. And he, uh, according to Hesiod, accepts the gift from Zeus and only realizes his terrible error too late after he's opened the jar. And the names here are significant. Uh, in ancient Greek, Prometheus means foresight, looking ahead. Epimetheus means hindsight. And that makes him the perfect patsy for Zeus's cruel trap. And I guess we could draw a lesson here, I think. Uh, uh, maybe as the science of robotics and AI advances at a relentless rate, maybe we need a, a few more Promethean uh, thinkers uh, and not just Epimethean uh, people going for short-term gains without looking ahead. And also notice that Hephaestus's self-moving devices and automatons are they're charming, uh, they're, they're harmless, they're benevolent when they're confined to the heavenly realm and they're used by the gods and goddesses up in heaven. But when Zeus sends automatons to earth, things go badly for humans. Uh, you could say that uh, as a, uh, Isaac Asimov's laws get broken when they come to earth. And the myths seem to be uh, suggesting, or we can take uh, this lesson that maybe these things are good to think about in the abstract, uh, but you have to take great care when they interact on a human plane. I think another point to ponder is the association between technology and tyranny. It's arousing a lot of concern today. Um, and we can notice who commissions and deploys automatons in these myths. It's people with power. It's uh, the gods, especially the tyrannical god Zeus and powerful kings. And technology uh, then was linked with tyranny very early in human history in these myths. But this pattern also occurred in real historical times in antiquity with examples going back to at least the sixth century uh, BC with powerful kings uh, commissioning uh, machines to kill and torture uh, others. I think Prometheus uh, is a valuable uh, model for those to, who are thinking about or seeking to create artificial life uh, because he is the one who's always looking out for humankind. And according to myth, it was Prometheus who made the first human being. And there's an amazing set of engravings, more than 60 of them, uh, engravings uh, on tiny gems worn uh, as rings or made uh, as seals that depict Prometheus as a kind of engineer using tools to construct the first human prototype. Next slide, please. Uh, he's working step by step, uh, working from the inside out, beginning with the internal framework uh, the skeleton, and then he will add uh, muscles and tendons and internal organs and, and flesh. Um, and, the, and these uh, gems are from about 300 to 100 BC. After he made humans, and we hear this from Sappho very early, uh, early in Greek literature, Sappho says that, uh, that he stole the technology of fire after he made the first human beings. And he stole the fire because he was worried about the naked, vulnerable humans 
surviving in the harsh world. So he stole the technology of fire and taught the first men and women crafts uh, and how to use fire, which allowed them to uh, begin to invent language and, and uh, plan cooperatively together all sorts of uh, um, hallmarks of civilization and culture. And as I'm sure uh, many of you recall, Mary Shelley's great science fiction novel of uh, 200 years ago, 1818, Frankenstein, it was uh, subtitled A Modern Prometheus. And comparing the Prometheus of, of Greek myth with the modern uh, scientist in that novel, Victor Frankenstein, uh, one is uh, struck with the question of what creators might owe to their creations of artificial life. And Victor Frankenstein, you recall, was repulsed by his creation. It was monstrous and he disowned it in the end. While Prometheus remains a kind of archetype of the responsible creator who takes, uh, uh, tries to help his, his creations. Well, I think these examples from <clears throat> literature and art do show that the ability to imagine making artificial life, uh, automatons, robots, has more ancient uh, roots than most people realize. Um, we can trace these cultural dreams of technology all the way back to the myths of classical Greece, uh, first written down uh, between the 8th and 7th century BC. And here I do want to mention that the Greeks uh, were not unique in imagining automatons or artificial life. Stories about making artificial life also appear in ancient India and China as well. Um, so it is clear that automatons are not only thinkable long before the technology uh, was available or existed, but many of the practical and ethical issues about imitating nature, they're foreshadowed in these ancient myths, if you really look closely, uh, uh, myths about what one could achieve if one had advanced biotechnology. So just to conclude, it seem, uh, probably seems ironic um, to be looking back to the ancient past, but I've asked you to time travel more than two millennia uh, to consider some of the first uh, science fiction tales. But I do hope that uh, the sophistication and the relevance of uh, these ancient dreams and the qualms that they express about technology might enrich our understanding of the timeless link between imagination and science. Okay, I look forward to hearing uh, comments and questions. Thank you so much, Adrian. That was a really fascinating presentation and some spectacular images there. So now I want to turn um, to our first commentator, Professor Shadi Bajzimmer. Shadi. I've enjoyed thinking with Adrian Mayer's pioneering work on gods and robots in antiquity. Modern AI has many manifestations, of course, and Mayer's study leans towards the idea of the robot. That is, the thing made, not born, the thing that shares some qualities with human life, whether veins funneling I-Core, the ability for spontaneous movement, or the modicum of intelligence needed to serve a glass of wine, a function which even my dog has not mastered. Another mo uh, model for modern AI is that embraced by corporations such as Amazon, Google, Facebook, and IBM. Machine learning systems dedicated to forms of cognition associated with human intelligence, 
such as learning, problem solving, and pattern recognition. Yet another category of AI common today uh, includes what we might call human enhancing devices like Daedalus's wings. That is forms of technology that allow us to transcend human abilities while retaining our own humanity, at least for a while. Mayer's book touches on this last sort of AI in passing, but I'd like to expand on her observations in my comments for this panel. To do so, I should first point out that most scholars treat ancient Greek techne, craft skill, as distinct from the modern term technology. As Stanley Rosen, George Grant, and Arthur Meltzer have argued, technology tries to bend nature to our will, a stance that takes the offensive in seeking to combat or transcend the natural world. It also brings with it the potential for ruin. Did the ancients think about technology in that sense as well? I'd suggest that the answer is yes, and that we can find in Sophocles the first stirrings of fear about technology over two millennia before our time. Dr. Mayer's robot Talus, of course, does not seek to conquer nature except by dint of being unnatural. In confusing the boundary between the animate and the inanimate, Talus does count in modern terms as a sort of technology. On the other hand, Talus fails what we might call the Stanley Rosen test for AI. He is a wonder, but he does not have the potential to ruin the world. Daedalus's wings are more complicated. In, in transcending nature, they lead to individual death by AI, but their impact is limited to those who choose to wear them. It is instead in the famous Deinos ode of Sophocles' Antigone, I'd suggest that Rosen's criteria are met. In that choral ode, the chorus sings, quote, many things are formidable, Deinos, none more formidable than man. He crosses the gray sea beneath the winter wind, passing beneath the surges that surround him, and he wears away the highest of the gods, earth, immortal and unwearying, as his plows go back and forth from year to year, turning the soil with the aid of the breed of horses." End quote. According to the chorus, man has also conquered birds and beasts and fish and disease, everything besides death. Skillful beyond expectation is his techne, the chorus adds, and so he advances sometimes to evil, at other times to good. When he applies the laws of the earth and the justice of the gods, he may remain in the city. If his aim is gain, however, he must be cast out. Techne, as this chorus sees it, strives to overcome the harshness of nature as a whole. It is large scale and offensive. The chorus's treatment of cleverness, de notes, also corresponds with Aristotle's view in the Nicomachean Ethics 612 that it may be used for good or for evil. It is the latter 
when it stops at nothing, when it encompasses all doing, panurgia. And when is that? The answer lies in the fact that the chorus speaks of the laws of the earth, not the city, and the justice of the gods, not of men. The earth and the gods must be the arbitrators of large-scale offensive techne, even in Sophocles. Techne, or as Rosen would call it, technology. The earth and the gods represent the needs of our planet and an ethical system uncorrupted by human desire. Anyone who violates these ethical ends for profit is a danger. Is this not a harbinger of modern technology clad in the pelt of techne? Jacques Ellul in the Technological Society argues that more efficient techniques will always triumph over lesser ones and that man has no control over this ironclad rule. In other words, that neither human ethics nor the welfare of our planet can stop us, let alone will. Sophocles' chorus may have hoped that we could avert this by removing the facilitators of technology from human society, but we have not. And the fears that the chorus voiced may have proven all too true. Here, I think, is the most terrible intimation in antiquity of what AI and technology could bring thousands of years later. Thank you. Thank you so much, Shadi. And now we'll pass on to a second commentator, Armand Dango. Armand. Thank you very much. Um, I much enjoyed hearing uh, Adrian talk about her book, which I think is terrific, and uh, Shadi's comments. Thank you. I'd just like to make three broad points, or touch on three issues, which relate to the connection between the kind of thing we've heard about in the classical world, in, in the world of ancient Greece, and um, modern AI. Uh, as Shadi said, um, the kind of thing that Adrian is, uh, was concentrating on, at least in the talk, was really to do more with, with robots and tools and things created. Um, Whereas, of course, we tend to think of artificial intelligence as much more how we can uh, achieve certain kinds of goals uh, through uh, understanding the way people think or, or the way we can create artificial ways of thinking. Um, the kind of thing that a Turing test looks into, for example, it does this thing, whether it's a computer or monitor or something, you know, make us think this could be the same level as we are on a human, uh, in, in terms of human intelligence. So um, one thing that it made me think was, what would have been the equivalent in the ancient world of having access to some kind of intelligence, particularly predictive intelligence? Because if one thinks about it, a lot of what science is doing is trying to say, look, we want to think about how things will be in the future and how that may benefit us individually or collectively. And of course, the answer in the ancient world is purely supernatural. It is the access to divine minds, such as that of the god Apollo, through the uh, 
the work, the operation of uh, of an individual such as the Delphic Oracle, the uh, young woman who was said to have gone into a trance. Apollo invested this woman's body and mind, and from her mouth came intelligence. Uh, people uh, believed instinct uh, deeply in the Delphic Oracle. They would uh, go and, and, and ask questions of it. And what the Oracle said was taken very seriously, though, of course, famously, the Delphic Oracle was ambiguous. So what it said could be interpreted, but was likely to be misinterpreted according to the wishful thinking of the recipient. So that's just you know, one aspect of the idea that artificial intelligence is seeking some kind of um, uh, some kind of access to knowledge, but that that access may well deceive us through our own projection of what we want onto that thing. Um, so the second point I just want to take up is uh, what Shadi was saying about the dangers of techne, technology being both potentially good and bad. Um, and one of the things that I looked into uh, for many years and, and ended up in my book, uh, The Greeks and the New in 2011, was how the Greeks thought about novelty and innovation. And the standard trope in ancient studies was the Greeks didn't like anything new, but there's a whole book devoted to that in the 1950s called In the Grip of the Past. And that is the bottom line. The Greeks didn't like anything new. And this is about a culture which invented philosophy, theatre, the first monetary economy, logic, mathematical proof. You know, you could go on. How is it that these people despite not wanting, not liking anything new, managed to be so massively innovative. I mean, they really were masochists, weren't they? So one of the things that my book sought to do was show that there were areas in which they not only sought the new, but they promoted it as a good thing. And when one looks into uh, the history of ancient thinkers talking about innovation, it's actually hard to find any treatise that talks about the new as such. About the closest we come to it is Aristotle's uh, politics, in which he talks about innovative constitutions, um, ways in which people came up with imaginative ideas about how to create a new kind of uh, a governmental constitution. And of course, Plato's Republic, is one of those, it's a utopia, uh, and Aristotle criticizes it. He also talks about some of the communistic schemes that were suggested, as a man called Phaleas of Chalcedon, he talks about, who came up with the idea of sharing property in common, I mean, extraordinary proto-communism, and Aristotle comes up with some very good sensible objections to why it's not gonna work, basically because of human nature. Um, and he talks about a man called Hippodamus, who amongst other things, was a very great uh, city planner and he worked out the grid system that was used in the Piraeus. And uh, he said he was a very flamboyant and innovative individual amongst other things. He suggested that there should be a prize instituted for innovative political ideas. So a prize for coming up with a good new kind of constitution. 
So the idea of a prize, of course, leads us to the thought of incentives. The Greeks were very keen on rewards and prizes. I mean, that's, they were very competitive. And they thought, you know, if there's, there's a good prize and you can uh, incentivize things, then people will come up with new ideas. So I think that that's an area of Greek society uh, which showed how keen they were on innovation. Now, of course, uh, we, we can talk about a lot of the actual technological innovations that happened at a slightly later period, the Hellenistic and other periods, essentially to do with hydraulics and uh, steam combustion and so on, which was the principle on which Archytas' dove flew, in fact. It was a kind of steam-powered dove. Um, those things never quite got off the ground. Um, I once gave a talk on ancient aeronautics with a bit of a tongue-in-cheek, and I said, you know, flying was of great interest to the ancient Greeks, but it never quite got off the ground. Uh, nonetheless, as I said at the time, flying was in the air in the, in the fifth century BC. I mean, there was a lot of interest in this idea of using wings. There, there's a play called, uh, a comedy called The Birds by Aristophanes, where people don wings and pretend to be birds. And, and you can imagine people trying out flying uh, in that way. But what is interesting is that a lot of that goes back to Deedless, as we heard from Shadi, and the invention of, of, of you know, man-powered flight by this inventive man, inventive in all kinds of ways he was supposed to have been. One of them was that he, he built the wings for his son Icarus and of course failed tremendously. But where does that very early myth come from? It seems to be connected to the Greeks' connections to ancient Egyptian sailing technology. And if you think about it, when people first come across certain kinds of technology, they think, my goodness, maybe that means, you know, what are these boats doing? They're actually capturing the wind in sails and flying across the sea. So maybe we can adapt that kind of technology and think about using it for flying. So um, the idea of techno then as something that might be good or bad, most of the ancients in any text that you read thought that any kind of um, attempt to scale the sea was a bad thing. Sailing was basically seen as negative. I mean, it was very dangerous. There were frequent shipwrecks. They're all over the Mediterranean, boats at the bottom of the Mediterranean. So sailing itself was bad enough. Flying would go one step further and of course, the whole myth of Icarus is dressed up in this uh, idea that, that he's committing a hubris uh, by attempting to fly too close to the sun. Look, I can fly, his wax wings melt and he falls and becomes the name of the Icarian Sea. Um, and so the third point I want to bring up is, is, is the idea of an orientation towards the future. Because that, it seems to me, is something that changes in the history of the classical world as we know it. Um, one very simple concrete example of this is that when we read in Homer about the prophet Calchas, we're told he could see behind him. He could not only see in front of him, he could see behind him. And what that means is he could not only see the past, which was in front of him, there it is spread out in front of us. I mean, you know, that was what Calchas could see, but he could see behind, which was the future. And so one has to imagine that the idea, the imagination of the Greeks at that age was something like this. We're traveling in a cart, traveling backwards into the future, 
We can't see what's going to happen behind us. It might hit us suddenly. We can, of course, look and see what happens in the past because it's right in front of our eyes. But we really feel quite blind to the future. As I mentioned, there's divination, there's the idea of prophecy. You can perhaps glimpse occasionally behind you, like Calchas the prophet, and see what's coming. But on the whole, we are blind to the future. We are facing the past. And then something changes in the middle of the 5th century BC, the sort of period uh, around 440 when Sophocles is writing his Antigone and that ode talking about the formidable nature of human beings. They can do basically anything. The only thing they can't do is stop us from dying. Uh, we've created medicine, we've created our agriculture, we've created cities and, and ideas and all those sorts of things. It's this wonderful uh, celebration of human ability. And in that century, we find texts where, on the whole, the idea of the future is something that we can look forward to. Uh, the idea of progress first emerges in some form during that century. The idea that, for example, in medicine, we uh, can look forward to a future in which one day, by analyzing disease and health, we can eventually attain the whole of medical knowledge. They actually say that in some of the Hippocratic treatises, they're so ambitious. They just realize that we can actually do it. Human beings are now striding forward confidently into a future which is ours. And of course, there are dangers with that view as well, because in some ways, it is a much more realistic point of view to suggest we simply are traveling backwards. Our faces are oriented towards the front. And so this image of us as traveling forwards into the future is potentially very dangerous because actually, we are not looking at the future. We are imagining the future. And we're imagining the future based on the past. And so I think this comes very nicely back to what Adrian has said, because she has managed to increase our sense of the imaginative resources that the ancient Greeks brought to the idea of artificial imagination. Thank you. Thank you so much, Emma. That's an excellent um, discussion so far. Let me... Um ask Adrian, is there anything you'd like to pick up, Adrian, on what's been said before we go to questions? You'll need to unmute, though. Yes, I really enjoyed uh, those comments, all very astute, um, especially uh, enjoy the reference to Sophocles' uh, pay on to human ingenuity and, and how it could uh, either be used for good or evil. Um, and that uh, tendency to imitate, improve, and sur surpass nature. Um, and as uh, I think uh, Shadi pointed out, that, that um, is there a feeling of danger to, by auto automatons or technology, is there a danger to more than just individuals and sort of a mass danger? Um, and I think uh, Armand mentions this too uh, about. Um, technology uh, um, and competition and rewards and prizes. And so uh, if you look at what, what did the Greeks use technology for, you, practical technology for, uh, it's, it's for theater and religion and spectacle and war. And no one has mentioned war machines yet, but uh, novel machines of war were rewarded by powerful kings uh, and rulers, in, uh, starting with uh, maybe Dionysus of, of Syracuse in 400, uh, uh, 
invited inventors and artisans and engineers to a contest to make advanced weapons of war. And the competition sp spurred them. And this uh, resulted in the first uh, torsion catapults, I believe, the first mechanized catapults. And now we're taking uh, uh, these prizes and contests continue. Uh, Philip, Philip II of Macedon also uh, um, rewarded military engineers. Uh, so did uh, Demetrius Polyorcetes for siege, siege machines. And Mithridates the Great also uh, had many engineers who built uh, innovative war machines in his court. So, and then of course, Archimedes, who, who also built uh, a lot of uh, technological machines for war. So there we see that uh, the, what you predicted, Armand, uh, of competition and uh, the idea that there will be prizes for innovation, it's all right there in, in, in war technology. So, so we uh, military engineers uh, inventing in order to be rewarded. Um, the military industrial complex of the ancient world. There we, there we go. And I, 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 as I pointed out in my book, uh, DARPA, the um, military scientists of the Pentagon, uh, were building a, uh, an advanced uh, exoskeleton that would be, um, have human enhancements and AI and make soldiers invulnerable. And what did they name it? They chose an acronym, T-A-L-O-S, uh, tactical attack. I, I can't remember what the acronym was, but they knew the story of Talos and they wanted to make their soldiers invulnerable like Talos. So um, one of the things I sometimes ask is why the Greeks didn't uh, go on and invent the kind of technological um, advances that we, we see ourselves. I think there's every reason that they could have done had it not been that they were concentrating on military technology and, <laughs> and conquest. Because, you know, if they invented hydraulics and steam machines already in the third century, we'd have had an industrial revolution had it not been for Alexander's desire and his successor's desire to conquer the world and divide it up. So Demosthenes says we have reached an age in which we have come to the end of innovation because it's all, it's all military. And I think that must have been the case. Yeah. Though it is kind of um, interesting to note that a lot of our contemporary innovations are also driven by military spending, but I guess in a very broad sort of way. Let me go to a question from our audience. This is from Liz. He asks, did the Greeks and Romans think of progress in a linear way? Did they think society was improving or did they have a different way of viewing time? This connects up a little bit with Armand's comments at the end. Anyone want to take that up? Maybe I, I could. Oh, go ahead, Adrian. And before you um, comment, I want Armand to comment on it, but I was, I was struck by your idea of uh, whether the past is in front of us or behind us. And there are anthropological studies of various cultures uh, that imagine, how do they imagine their ancestors? Do they imagine themselves at the head of the line of the ancestors behind them? Or are they marching behind their ancestors? And there are differences in various cultures. And as you say, the Greeks had the um, had the idea that uh, that that they were uh, one way, and then began to change. So now I think you should answer the question. Right. Well, uh, just to, in, in response to that question, well, famously the Greeks, uh, the earliest Greeks believed in regress, not in progress. So Hesiod, in uh, the seventh, uh, eighth, the seventh century, gives the myth of how human society has simply regressed uh, over various different ages. 
from a golden age far in the past to a bronze age and iron age and you know and, and the next age is, is going to be even worse he says so that uh, myth of regress is quite common in, in the ancient world and you find it uh, all the way through in even into roman times but alongside that and beginning in the fifth century basically as exemplified exactly by the antigone ode which uh, shadi read out uh, you have this sense of increasing ability a growth in capacity of human abilities and knowledge, which will lead to a, a better future. So uh, famously, uh, E.R. Dodds wrote a book called the, the Greek Idea of Progress. It's a series of essays in which he, he talks about how there is this switch towards an idea of progress, but it's not our idea of progress, which is some continuous linear one, which is mentioned by the questioner. Uh, it's that in certain areas, in certain ways, we can do better in future and we will. But I think that that basic idea that things are always getting worse and certainly morally worse is continuously present in the ancient world. And they also um, seem, tend to look at past societies as having advanced uh, technology. Uh, for instance, the way, they, the way the Greeks looked at Egypt uh, and building the pyramids and things like that. So, so the, there's this idea that people in the past, whether in real history or remote history or myth, had advanced technology that that we don't have now. Shani, do you want to talk about the Roman conception? It's, it's the same in, in the Roman world, this idea of uh, a falling away from a state of, of moral purity, an age in which the earth gave up its goods automatically without man having to toil for them, which seems to be a, a universal story, very much reminiscent, for example, of the Adam and Eve story, in which it's only after the fall that Adam has to scrabble in the fields and Eve has to bear the pains of childbirth. So definitely in the Roman world, yes. And one of the propaganda points that Augustus leans on heavily when he comes to power after 31 BC is that he's going to reverse this moral decay. And one of the things he does is he restores all the ancient temples in the city of Rome as part of this um, new way of thinking about what, who the Romans are and um, what they're accomplishing during this first Pax Romana. Can I ask a follow-up about this? Because Aman, you talked about a shift in the understanding of time and the future as something we can look forward to. How does that relate to conceptions of hope? So for example, in the Pandora myth, there's a sus suspicion that hope is a mugs game, that basically it's this optimistic attitude you have basically on the basis of um, ignorance or someone's manipulating you. Do we then get Elpis or hope becoming something that is closer to say, the understanding of it as a virtue or at least an element of a virtue as this change uh happens? Uh, yes, I mean, so I think, again, textually, you can find examples, and, and again, in the, the Hippocratic corpus in some of the treatises, uh, that very word is used, Elpis, uh, there is a hope, they say, that we will get the whole knowledge of health and disease. So that is sometime late 5th century, probably, that treatise. Um, before that, and, and Adrian deals with this very nicely, uh, in, in Hesiod, you have this jar of evils, all the evils that come into the world and what is left is hope. So on the face of it, hope is yet one other evil, but it's the one that is retained. Uh, so um, the idea that hope itself is blind, that hope is not something that we really want to have, but we are left with it. You know, it's a very hard image to interpret. 
but the implication I, I think is that he thought hope was yet one of the other evils because hope is vain. Hope is not knowledge and that is what's left. And I think that can also be traced as something that changes uh, hope as bad expectation turning into hope as a good expectation over the course of the, the few centuries. If, if I could add a, a little footnote to that, um, Armand mentioned the uh, pronouncements of the Oracle of Apollo as being a, a, a way of imagining the future in antiquity. And I just wanted to point out that every single literary representation we have of, the, of those oracles being uttered show us that they are misinterpreted through the hope of the person receiving the pronouncement. So for example, I think it's Croesus or somebody else hears from the oracle, you will destroy a great empire. And off he rushes with his army, assuming that the empire he destroys will not be his own, which of course it is. So hope is very destructive in that context. Brilliant. Um, Adrian, I'm gonna ask you a really silly question, but you depicted Prometheus building a human. So how is a human then different from Pandora, who's also built? Yeah. And there we have the philosophical question that is still being pondered. I mean, um, if you think of the Gnostics, for instance, they, they believe that uh, we were all uh, products of uh, incompetent demiurges. Uh, and uh, Plato actually is the one of the first to express that, that question. He, he says, let's, let's imagine or let's pretend or let's consider that we are all puppets of the gods. So it certainly brings up uh, all sorts of questions of autonomy and free will. Um, if, he's, if we are but a technological project uh, of, of Prometheus, um, how do we have free will? It, it goes on and on. I mean, that, that question is uh, still pondered, of course. Um, let me ask you this question from Stan Gilmore. He says, Pandora, who's AI or robot, and Epithemius, rather foolish, gave birth to Pyrrha, mother of Helen, father of Greece, by Deucalion. So AI stopped humanity from dying out and brought forth a grand civilization. Do we owe it all to AI? Uh, that's a very, brings up very complex, interesting um questions about whether or not artificial life can reproduce itself, uh, whether um, uh, replicants uh, like uh, Pandora or uh, Galatea in the Pygmalion story, can, could they reproduce? We never hear anything about Pandora after she has opened the jar, com uh, completed her mission on earth in Greek literature. Uh, the story that uh, that she actually married Epimetheus and reproduced, had offspring, I believe comes from Ovid, a Roman writer who could not resist saying that she was so lifelike that she could uh, have babies. And that's where the story comes, comes from that she uh, did uh, reproduce. And uh, I think it's Hyginus, an even later uh, um, Roman writer who says that uh, Pygmalion and Galatea also had children. So um, I think that's just a um, science fiction uh, tendency that people just couldn't resist thinking about. And it's of course the theme of Blade Runner uh, 49, the, mo uh, the most recent Blade Runner film is uh, turns on the mystery of 
the question of whether or not a replicant woman could actually give birth. Uh, so I just think that's a probably a, a bit of ancient science. I should say that, um, of course, the first man has to be made out of clay, whether it's in the Greek tradition or in the Hebrew tradition, the biblical tradition, Adam, he's earth. And <laughs> there is the, this misogynistic element, uh, you know, common to ancient societies, whereby women is secondary, you know, Eve is, is, is made out of Adam's rib, um, Pandora comes along to destroy the sort of, you know, wonderful life that men are having. So I think one has to accept that, that there are certain cultural, um, culturally specific ways of thinking about both men and women, but nonetheless, that initially there has to be animate from inanimate, and you know, anima is breathed into clay. Uh, after that, yeah, you have human reproduction apart from individual creations. There is another um, story about um, uh, Hephaestus making various uh, robotic guard dogs for various kings uh, to guard uh, their palaces. And a later Roman writer then, uh, it might be Hygienus, uh, claims that uh, Molosian, the best Molosian hounds actually uh, they're, they were uh, descendants of the robotic dogs of gold and silver that were made uh, by Hephaestus. So once again, you just, uh, it's just a natural uh, science fiction type of idea. It's an interest, there's an interesting, um, many, many cultures have the idea that the first humans were made from mud or clay, uh, soil and uh, water or tears or blood, something like that. Um, but uh, it's rare that they have uh, any technology or techne associated with them. You know, the biblical story doesn't really have uh, craft uh, associated uh, with the creation, whereas the images of Prometheus do show him using tools and it's, it's technological. The only other ancient story I know that's similar to the Prometheus uh, type of story is uh, the, myth, the Egyptian myth of Katun, and I'm not pronouncing it correctly, um, who was the god who made the first humans. And he is the god of the potter's wheel, which is technology that was perfected in Egypt about, in about 3000. And he is shown creating the first humans on a potter's wheel, which involves technology plus the clay and the earth and water. So um, I, th I think that's a really interesting difference in, the, in those ancient stories of the first humans. Can I ask a, a question about a trope that came up that is very popular, which is that of robots or AI is merciless. So we had a discussion recently in the Institute about autonomous weapon systems. One of the objections to deploying them in war is that unlike a human soldier, they wouldn't show mercy towards um, other combatants or uh, non-combatants. So the question is, why is there this association or in the Greek context between mercilessness and uh, being an automaton? Now, it's probably important to distinguish two ideas. One is the idea of equity. So the idea that you have a rule, but in a particular case, this rule doesn't apply. So you need the flexibility to realize that a rule shouldn't be applied rigidly in this case. So that's one idea that there's a kind of flexibility in the application of rules, knowing when to deviate. But another is a more, I guess, um, 
probably more Roman in my view kind of idea in Seneca, that sometimes something is just, a punishment is justly deserved, but nonetheless, out of mercy, Clementia, you might then moderate the justly deserved punishment. Why is there this link between mercilessness of either of these sorts and being an automaton in this Greek context? Uh, I mean, what, are robots, what are these robots lacking? In other words, that makes them merciless. Well, they're they're half human and half machine, or partly, partly uh, more cyborg-like, and their uh, humanity part seems to be above themselves rather than others. At least in the Talos story, he makes a bad decision based on uh, what he wants. Um, but there, I, what you're talking about the drones and killing uh, from afar which uh, caused a lot of ambiguous feelings in, in antiquity, in Greece. Um, the um, ambivalent feelings about archers, for instance, who can kill from afar without uh, facing battle face to face. Now that it's, it's brains over, over brawn and so that's celebrated, of course, but it, there's also this feeling that ambush and arrows or, or uh, the technology of uh, being able to kill from afar uh, is somehow inhumane because it's, uh, it, it violates the uh, principle of reciprocal risk. In face-to-face -face fighting, you have reciprocal risk. Uh, and with the drones and uh, those kinds of modern weapons, you certainly don't have reciprocal risk. And we know that the army, uh, at least in the Gulf Wars, the, the early Gulf Wars, 1991, 2003, looked for soldiers who were really good at first person uh, video games uh, where, they, where you cannot have any mercy, you can't stop to think who you're killing. They, they looked for soldiers who were adept at that and had practiced getting rid of empathy for people they're killing. I could just add something, which is that of course, not all the um, robotic creatures such as those Adrian was talking about are malign. So the golden assistants of Hephaestus are things that we'd all like to have in the house, really. Um, but um, uh, it seems to me that this is where another um, notion comes in, and that is the notion of the uncanny. And a lot of, um, I mean, Freud talked about uh, das Unheimliche, which is the notion of the uncanny. Uh, it's related to the double, the doppelganger. And the reason that a doppelganger is uncanny is because it is so like us. So we might see a square object which uh, is emitting uh, fire as, as threatening, but not uncanny or horrible, but something that looks like a human being, something that is quasi-human but isn't actually human is much worse. And uh, you know, you think of Planet of the Apes or you think actually even of Daleks. I mean, God, how scared we were of those in the 1980s. They aren't really even human looking, but because they kind of talk and they move in a slightly uncannily human way. Uh, you know, that is, I think, what's going on, especially with these very lifelike uh, robot characters like Talos. Recently, uh, Boston Dynamics just uh, released a video of, um, of their uh, incredibly advanced robots dancing, and they um, they they actually presented this as 
see, our robots are less intimidating because they can dance. And I believe that many of us here are saying, no, no, that's the way <laughs> here. Because all the, I felt bad for all the graduate students in dance mechanics and things like that, body movement, who were helping uh, Boston mechanics make these moves. These moves are for killer robots. And uh, they, but this happens a lot. People who are making uh, advanced technology presented to us as beneficial. Uh, for instance, uh, we have lip read cameras. This will be such a boom to, uh, and we, but we all know uh, all the dark reasons that they're making those. So we need to be Promethean. <laughs> Let me ask one final question. And that is that it might be thought that for all the fears that technological advance and AI conjures up, the Greeks were immune to one of the fears that we have. Because a lot of people, when they think about the problems with AI, worry about the future of work. And they say, well, obviously work is a way of making a livelihood. So there is a financial or economic aspect to it, but it's also a source of um, self-respect and self-fulfillment that for a lot of people doing work is what gives meaning to their lives and that they fear AI, because even if there was a universal basic income, they would lose this source of meaning. I take it the Greeks didn't have this anxiety. They didn't value work in this way. Well, the work would be considered more menial, at least in ancient Athens, where it was relegated to non-citizens and, and slaves and the the definition of the human was the man who participated in the life of the city in politics, which is what you know, Greek citizen males of Athens did do. And so they simply found their meaning in a different realm. They had other people doing the hard work, the hard labor of, of farming or mining. They reaped the benefits themselves and they could spend all their lives uh, yakking it up in the assembly. So that's great. So let, because. John Maynard Keynes raises this question. He says, you know, one of the few justifications for having the super rich is that they are pioneering for us what it would be like to have a meaningful life if you didn't have to work, if you weren't constrained by necessity. So do the Greeks have an answer to that anxiety? Yakking it up, is that the answer? <laughs> <laughs> Look at the God of innovation. Look at the God of innovation, Hephaestus. He's always shown working. He's yeah. described as perspiring in his work. Um, he doesn't have to do that. He's a god. Um, on the other hand, he's a disabled god. So you can imagine that maybe mm. that's why he builds all these practical aids. Um, mm. But we do, have a, we do have an example of all these gods and goddesses have lives of leisure to yak it up and gossip and this and that. They don't necessarily do philosophy like the ancient Greek elites imagined themselves doing, but there is one God who works hard. <laughs> yes, and he was not a model for any ancient Greeks to aspire to, um, but um, more to the point, um, they didn't even aspire to being, for example, artists. There's a, there's a, a, a Lucian dialogue in which um, a, a young man who said, well, even if you could be Polycletus, the great sculptor, or Phidias, you know, you wouldn't want to be that. So that kind of work was not valued. And I should just remind you that in Aristotle's Ethics, when you know, he talks about what makes us eudaimon happy, what makes for well-being, what's his answer in book 10? Eternal contemplation of the truths of mathematics. 
(laughs) What we have to do is find what makes human beings flourishing and happy that doesn't involve what we normally call work. (laughs) Definitely the contemplation of mathematics. I I know it. (laughs) Thank you very much, everyone. This has been an amazing discussion. Thank you, Adrian, for that wonderful uh, talk and the fantastic graphics. Thank you to our two excellent commentators, Shadi Bach and Armand Dangor. Um, I just want to mention that on February the 16th, we will have our launch event on AI in a democratic culture. So please join us at 5 p.m. on February the 16th. Um, Our speakers will be uh, Professor Josh Cohen, Professor Helen Landmore, and Sir Nigel Shadbolt. So that will be a very interesting discussion about a number of very topical issues related to the interplay between AI and democracy. Thank you again for, for tuning in and hopefully see you next week. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.